0: Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, where we will be doing an in-depth structured analysis of Patrick Rothfuss's Kingkiller Chronicle.
1: We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it.
0: This is Tales from the Waystone, episode three, Let me tell you a story where we will be looking at chapters 7 and 8 of Name of the Wind through the lens of storytellers.
1: As always, we are extending a blanket spoiler warning across the entire episode because we are very likely going to be talking about things that happen in the future.
0: The future. The future.
1: As a reminder, each week we will be examining a section of the books through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives.
0: We'll also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian Phronemos of the Week.
1: After that, we'll expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, hopefully one that Master Elodin would even approve of.
0: And then finally, we'll wrap things up with seven words from the book and from our lives.
1: Before we begin, let's get our standard disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher.
0: Also, a word to the community. It's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it. That's what we do, too. That said, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. To lead things off here, it is time for us to do our 45-second recap. As you may recall, we're switching off each week, so this week, it's Phoenix's turn to try and avoid the Dread Raspberry.
1: Is that like the Dread Private Roberts?
0: Except much more delicious. Says who? Everyone who has taste buds. (laughs) All right, let me get a stopwatch ready.
1: Before we begin, I just want to say that this is a very short section that we have chosen to do, and I'm feeling quite confident.
0: So confident that you think you can do it in less than 30 seconds? Maybe.
1: You got a stopwatch?
0: Got a stopwatch. On my mark, and three, two, one, go.
1: It is morning in the inn. The sun reminds chronicler of beginnings, but the time of year reminds him of endings. Quoth makes chronicler teach him his cipher before he'll tell his story. We get glimpses of stories about Quoth, including the time he learned Temma in a day. Quoth starts his story, and we meet his dad, his mom, and his teacher Abanthy. Kid Quoth gets defensive over the poor treatment of his troop in a way that shows how young he really is. He sees Ben use sympathy and call the name of the wind and invites Ben to travel with the troop.
0: 29.53 seconds. I
1: still did it!
0: Just under the wire. I
1: didn't actually think I was going to make it.
0: High five. So these two chapters sort of form back-to-back pairs of storytellers. One is Chronicler, the other is kvoth. So I thought it might be interesting to sort of change up how we talk about these chapters and specifically use them as a way to compare and contrast these two characters.
1: That sounds interesting. I'd love to do that.
0: The first chapter belongs to Chronicler. Chronicler is our primary point of view character for this framing device. He's the one that we're using to learn about the world and also Quoth.
1: Real quick, just as an aside before we get a little too far away from it. One thing that I do want to point out is that there was a little bit of time where he's sitting there with a blank page. As someone who likes to write in journals or make lists or draw, there is something absolutely alluring about a blank piece of paper. Also something incredibly terrifying.
0: It's the same appeal when you're skiing and you come across an open stretch of untouched powder, and you know one of two things is going to happen. Either one, it's going to be the best thing ever, or it's going to be miserable. (laughs) You aren't sure what.
1: And generally with paper, the person using the paper is the one that either makes it the best thing ever, or absolutely miserable.
0: The same can be true in skiing. (laughs)
1: Fair enough, I'm not a skier. The other thing I want to point out is, as the light climbed up the wall towards the sword, It was looking for a beginning, but it didn't find one, and it just makes me think again that that sword represents an ending.
0: It's an emblem of death, which is the ultimate ending.
1: But who's death?
0: That's an open question. So let's talk a little bit about who Chronicler is. One thing that you notice really quickly is his greatest prize is accuracy. He is more interested in an accurate story than one that's exciting or entertaining.
1: I would say he's actually not doing that and the reason that I say that is because he says that he will go through and essentially edit whatever he is told to put things back into the order that they make more sense in things such as that.
0: Even so his primary goal is to make sure that the story is an accurate telling of what happened not necessarily what someone told him. I'll give you that. He's thinking about this from the perspective of a historical record as opposed to a narrative to tell around the campfire or to entertain people.
1: Lord knows that there's plenty of stories about Quoth. We don't need to have another story about Quoth. He wants a history about Quoth.
0: It's the difference between a medieval chronicle, hence the name, and a mythic epic. To give you just a little bit of background on my own life, there was a period in my life where I studied a lot of medieval history, that included reading medieval Russian chronicles, and then comparing that with, say, the Norse Edda. The difference between them is actually pretty striking, whereas the Edda is just as much a record of deeds, it's done so in a way that's meant to be heroic and satisfying and memorable. Whereas the chronicles of the Kievan princes are very dry, just a record of events that happened, but definitely important. Another thing that I thought was interesting about Chronicler is he tends to view himself as objective, or at least as objective as can be. Now of course, as we discussed last week, true objectivity is oftentimes illusory because No one truly knows everything, and we're all subject to our own biases and suppositions. Another thing that's kind of cool is he is specifically working in a written tradition. It's such that he's even invented his own shorthand cipher to rapidly take notes in real time, like a medieval stenographer, almost.
1: Yeah, he says that there are approximately 50 different sounds...
0: He's not writing words, he's writing sounds down, and then he can get anything, even if it's a made-up word. Like a goliant. Exactly. One other thing I noticed about Chronicler is that he really does prefer to downplay his heritage. He is someone who comes from noble birth, and a wealthy, well-known family, the Lockies family, who has mostly forsaken that heritage to the point where he doesn't even think of himself by that name. I think that's going to be interesting when we compare it to Kvoth.
1: Kvoth very clearly has an ego.
0: And the first thing Kwoth identifies himself with after his name is, I am of the Edima Rue. My family. And he never forgets that. So it's just an interesting parallel between the two of them. Another little mirror between the two is where Chronicler is all about that written word. Quoth is telling stories in an oral tradition. For him, these are works of art in their own right, and the ability to tell a story is more important than writing it down. His preference is not necessarily for a strictly accurate or chronological order. It's for the most dramatic. He does things like looking for threes,
1: he looks down at his hands for the space of three breaths before he starts.
0: That's exactly his M.O. there. We're given that these are both intelligent linguists in their own right, but where Chronicler is inventing his own cipher, his own language, Quoth is introduced by breaking it, by learning it and reverse engineering it. And where Chronicler generally leaves himself out of the story altogether... Both loves putting himself at the center of it.
1: He even says that we should look at this from the most important perspective. Mine.
0: And he literally does see himself as the most important person in the universe.
1: You see that when he's interacting with his friends at the university later on in the books. He always, always is concerned about how things affect him. But he's never... Aware, or seemingly, he doesn't care about how anything affects his friends, much less how he affects his friends.
0: He's all fine and dandy to help his friends out or ask for their help if it's something where it will benefit him or it aligns with his own interests. He'll help a friend to spite an enemy, but he isn't going to go out of his way to help a friend just because he thinks it's the right thing to do. Even where Chronicler, as we said earlier, presents himself as an objective arbiter of truth, Quoth loves to call his own reliability into doubt. Even as he is definitely an unreliable narrator and a damned liar, he never lets us forget that he's a damned liar. For instance, he says, the best lies about me were ones that I told myself. If we already believe that he's capable of lying about these other things, What reason should we have when he says, okay, but this is really what happened?
1: Just the fact that he knows exactly how much money he has at any given point in the story kind of tells me that maybe he's not being exactly what I would say truthful. It's more of the appearance of truth rather than the nice and accurate retelling. I mean, he says it three times. He says, if this is to be something resembling my book of deeds...
0: He's already admitting that there's going to be inaccuracies
1: probably exaggerations.
0: and again he is doing so with a narrative flourish. Not only that, he's able to do all of this in one go. He's been rehearsing it for a while in his head, you get the feeling. Think about how often we have to re-record things that we're improvising and he's just off the cuff saying, okay I'm going to tell you the entire story of my life over the course of three whole days. We're not gonna stop.
1: Let's be generous here. He starts when he's 11. He's probably no more than 20. It's nine years worth of his life in three days. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know that that would be a thing I could do.
0: So what did you notice in comparing and contrasting these two characters?
1: One thing I do notice about Quoth's storytelling is that he puts a lot of flourishes on things he learned from his father at a very young age how to tell a story ultimately i think that he was emotionally stunted at around 11 or 12 when the entirety of his family is killed you look at when he's telling his story he's not even putting himself like kid Kvoth into the best light Quoth as a kid is very proud. He's very defensive. He's got a superiority complex already, and he's 11. He doesn't like to be looked down upon by people who have never opened a book. And I think that we come into that as a problem with a lot of educated people.
0: Kvothe comes across as a little bit snotty here. He looks down on these villagers who haven't had the same kinds of opportunities that he's had Even as a traveling trooper, his family has been afforded all kinds of opportunities that were plain and simple not available to the villagers.
1: One thing to note is that he decided to go and hide in a village that is very similar, where people are superstitious, where there's no understanding of sympathy lamps. I mean, he used oil lamps. He knows what sympathy lamps are. He makes sympathy lamps. A lot of sympathy lamps. By trying to appear uneducated and unassuming, I think that's also one of those things that's making his shell of coat crack. There's some things that happen here that are relevant to future places in the story, such as Quoth's insistence that the Edimaru are always good, that the Edimaru are always smart and they would never hurt anyone. He is very dug in on this. He cannot conceive of anyone in his family being less than awesome, being less than perfect.
0: This is true especially of his immediate family, his mother and father, who he portrays in this extremely idealistic way. He refers to his father as the greatest actor the world has ever known, as if he'd ever seen every actor ever.
1: Chances are he's barely seen any other troops. Why would his family perform around other troops? Why would he be exposed to them other than with the idea of learning from them? When Quoth actually starts his story, he does it in such a way that he's giving us hints about things that we will learn about in the future. He's giving us a sentence or two. The story starts when I heard her singing her voice twining, mixing with my own. And we've heard this story later on in the two books that we've got. Denna is the character that is almost always going to be the her in any of these stories from what we can tell. And when his talent pipes at the Aeolian, he does so by singing a song called The Tale of Sir Savian," which is also a duet. But he didn't prepare a duet with anyone else. He's just hoping someone will actually jump in. And it turns out that Denna does, after some gut-tightening seconds of, uh-oh, I made a mistake. But then, of course, Kvoth never makes a mistake. He mentions that the university is where he went to learn magic, the sort that you hear about in stories. He also mentions unexpected fires at twilight a man with eyes like ice at the bottom of a well and we can assume that that was sender that story comes up pretty soon a couple episodes maybe from where we are right now and then he says overall this is a story about the chandrian and it's interesting that it's said that way because overall the king killer chronicle is pretty much while it is yes Foth's story also a story about the Chandrian.
0: And a story about stories. Stories end up influencing the way people view the world, and they shape Quoth's own narrative viewpoint, his own worldview.
1: You mentioned that three shows up a lot. Yes. So the Adim, this is our first actual mention of the Adim, have named him Medra, and it has three meanings the flame, the thunder, and the broken tree. And without elaborating, he says that the broken tree, while he never really gave it thought, which I'm going to call bullshit on that, because Kvothe thinks of everything and overanalyzes everything, kind of like we do. In some ways, that's also prophetic. So I have two theories about which tree this could be. Any guesses?
0: So there's the sword tree, which is a willow-like tree with razor-sharp leaves that the Adem use as a sort of practice and test for initiates in their fighting school to prove their mastery. And Quoth has to confront while he is attending Shayen's school.
1: Ultimately, it led to him being able to call the wind. And
0: the other would possibly be the tree where he encounters the Cathay.
1: So do you think that there's any merit to either of those being the broken tree? I kind
0: of think that because he believes in signs and omens, he's made it into a sign and an omen, and it really could be just about anything. It's like a horoscope. It's just vague enough that you can fit just about anything into it if you really want to.
1: So there are a couple of things that don't actually fit within the construct of our episode that I'd still like to go over. Okay. There's a section where Quoth actually goes through all of the names that he goes by, because again, narrative flourish. So he says that his teacher called him Ilir because he was clever. His first real lover called him Dulator, and we haven't actually heard anyone call him that. Other names are Shadokar, Lightfinger, Six Strings makes sense, and that comes from when one of his lute strings broke, and he had to play an exceedingly Complicated song with one less string than it required. He's been called Quoth the Bloodless, which we've heard that name before and we will come across that story soon ish. Quoth the Arcane, Quoth King Killer, and then he says, My father told me that my name Quoth meant to know, which is interesting to me because he's so curious. There's also a bunch of little allusions to all the stories about him that he burned down the town of traben and that's going to happen at the end of name of the wind we get to know a lot of the stories that he references here and i think it's also kind of funny in that one of the things that chronicler is so interested in about how he learned all of Tema in a day later on both just brushes it off that's not interesting i don't care
0: But all of those stories about him keeping account of his ledger are extremely interesting.
1: Of course they are. There is a big theory that we would be probably crucified if we didn't talk about. In this particular section, it's the first time that we know that Kvothe's mother was a former noble. Also that Kvoth doesn't actually know what noble family that was. Though it was very likely the Lackless family
0: as we will see when his mother chides him for reciting a rather crude nursery rhyme about Lady Lackless.
1: At the end, when the 11-year-old Quoth extends an offer to Avanthi to join his troop, or his father's troop, he has a brief moment of self-awareness that he may be overstepping himself.
0: That's an understatement right there.
1: I know. This little impertinent kid is like, it's my trip, you should come with
0: us. I can only imagine that if 11-year-old me invited a stranger into my parents' home and just said, oh yeah, come on in, that would have gone over terribly.
1: Like a lead balloon?
0: Yeah, that had been transmuted from iron. So now let's talk a little bit about how storytellers actually impact our day-to-day lives. Something that I've been thinking about is how even if the stories that a storyteller tells aren't specifically accurate, the way that they tell them reveals something about what they value and what we value. Say for instance, you go to the latest Marvel movie, even though Captain America never existed, and even as the America that he claims to value probably never existed, The values that he aspires reveal something about the people that we want to be, the way we want to see ourselves.
1: You can almost predict some stories and some things, they try to do the opposite. You can do what people expect and do it well, or you can try to do everything that somebody wouldn't expect with generally middling results. While you're telling a story and being subversive, sometimes it doesn't land. There's a reason that a lot of people like the three-act structure. There's a reason why people don't mind plots that they expect. And that sometimes when you tell a story that has a nonsensical ending, it leaves people unfulfilled. You know, the blue brick joke. So you think about... How Quoth was sick of being the only person who was telling stories amongst the four people going out and looking for bandits. And then he tells this nonsensical story that's talking about a boy that was born with a golden screw in his belly button. The whole ending is so unfulfilling to most everybody except for Tempe because somebody just took out a golden screwdriver, undid the screw, and his ash fell off. And it makes everyone upset. So you see that happening in narratives. You see that when people try to be unpredictable. I think in some ways we are all storytellers, whether or not we are good storytellers.
0: Yeah, everyone does have stories, whether they are stories of their lives or fictional things that they tell their friends or jokes or what have you.
1: And I think a lot of people like to make up stories whether those stories get told to anybody, get written down, or just stay in their heads forever. I think that storytellers are a big part of nearly everybody's lives, and a lot of creative people like to either take a story and modify it, or they like to extend it because they would like to imagine what happens after the original story is done.
0: And our lives are unending stories for that matter. If you were to look at the traditional fairy tale, our story would have ended with a happily ever after at our wedding. But we've been married for seven years now, and there's been so much more that's happened after the wedding than happened before. Each ending of a story is just another beginning from a new one.
1: And I think a lot of people build up these stories and maybe don't consider that there is something afterward.
0: It's always fun to explore that. So now we've come to our Phronemos of the Week segment. This takes its name from Aristotle's description of the practically wise person. One thing that I enjoy doing is finding someone in the story who I think is a good model for practical wisdom for both Quoth and for us. This week it's my turn, and my choice from the book is hetera. She was the courtesan in Quoth's troop who taught him that he should never do anything in private that he doesn't want talked about in public. I was drawn to this because I'm always interested in consistency between who we are in private versus who we are in public. If it's in any way inauthentic, that ends up ringing hollow. And so there has to be an element of your private self in your public self. For it to be truly authentic. And this is not to say that you just broadcast everything that is going on in your internal life to the entire world. But rather that who you are in public comes from who you are in private. They should be connected.
1: I think, I think all of us have different selves. Maybe this is talking about whether or not you should feel shame for who you are. For some people, it's harder than others. But I would hope that most people do not feel shame about who they are in private. I think that everybody in private is at least a little bit different than who they are in public. There are things that a lot of people don't like to talk about. But having a burning secret inside of you can consume you. I think it's interesting, though, the way that it was said by Hetera. She taught me that I should never do anything in private that I didn't want talked about in public. Which, to me, is more about the fact that your actions can be seen even if you think you're in private. The things that you do inform who you are. In some ways, it's okay to have a completely private self, especially if you're just not ready to talk about it. I think that Hedera's lesson is one of, even if you can't necessarily express everything about you to the outside world, you can be authentic to yourself, no matter if you are in public or private.
0: I think that's what I was trying to get at, too. And that's what spoke to me. And you know, in our day and age, where we have people talking on social media constantly about private things, oftentimes we think that the things that we post on social media are just for our friends, but they're out there in the public square.
1: I think your point on social media is interesting but backward. I think that a lot of times we cultivate what our social media looks like. So that the things that we share publicly are not necessarily all the struggles we deal with privately.
0: I would agree with that.
1: Some of us are more open book than others. Some people express everything that's going on, whether it's negative or positive. And a lot of people use it as a tool to show people how well they're doing. Not necessarily from a standpoint of, I want to show off so that you feel bad. It does actually make a lot of people feel bad because when they see people post on social media, they assume that that is everything. They don't see the private struggles. They don't see the hardships that aren't talked about, the things that are specifically kept
0: private. I think part of that is because those stories that people are sharing on social media, coming back to our lens, are oftentimes the stories that they want to tell about themselves, how they want to view themselves, not necessarily how they want other people to view them.
1: In a lot of these ways, we are telling these stories for ourselves, and other people are interpreting them as something to be consumed. It's turning into a quagmire more than anything. You just have to know that even as I am posting about how happy I am that I got through editing two hours worth of audio, that that struggle was including teaching myself how to use the audio program and going through and having to do it more than once or having to make a decision on what my time was worth. I didn't go through all of the struggles in my head. I didn't go through every aspect, every high, every low. You just get a two-sentence snippet of, Woot, I did this thing.
0: And that's a story that you tell to celebrate your accomplishment, and hopefully, you know, maybe someone else will be inspired by that. It really does help to remember that the stories that we see may not be aimed at us specifically.
1: And while they may be true and they may be accurate, they may not be an entire, complete picture.
0: And we may not be owed that entire picture.
1: We are not owed that entire picture.
0: All right, well, that was a really fascinating conversation there. Thank you for that. Now it's time for the interesting fact of the week. This time it's your turn to try and interest me with something about our world in the spirit of Master Elodin's lessons. Now, of course, if you fail to interest me, there will be raspberries for you.
1: Dun, dun, dun. You sound so happy about this.
0: Because it would be an excuse for me also to have raspberries around.
1: No one's preventing that.
0: It's just not sensible for me to get raspberry things if you're not going to eat them as well.
1: But you get me cherries.
0: It's because I love you.
1: D'aw. Yay, we've made the podcast audience vomit again. Do
0: you have your interesting fact picked out? I've got a few. Interest me.
1: One thing that piqued my interest while I was reading was when Chronicler and Quoth are going over Chronicler's cipher. And in that little section, he says that there are around 50 sounds that are made, and that's why he has 50 different kind of symbols. I wanted to know a little bit more about how that equated to English, presuming that Turin is very similar or the same as English. What I have found is that English has somewhere between 42 and 44 distinct speech sounds. So Patrick Rothfuss was pretty on the nose when he said 50, or rather when Chronicler said 50. And it makes me wonder about other languages. Do other languages have around the same number of speech sounds? And also what the upper and lower limits are. So it turns out that the most number of distinct speech sounds a language can actually have is somewhere between around 90 and 110, and it depends on how you count them. Most of the languages that have a large number of speech sounds like that are click languages. On the flip side, the smallest number of speech sounds that a language can actually function with is between 10 and 11. I think my last sentence had more than 11 speech sounds.
0: Okay, so I'm fascinated by languages. So, yeah, you got me. <laughs> yes!
1: No raspberries for me! That doesn't mean you can't have any. <laughs> You're going to the grocery store to later today anyway. You can pick yourself up,
0: so. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I really appreciated the lesson there. Now we come to our time where we share seven words to make us smile, both from the book and from life. And my choice was... Now I didn't know what to believe.
1: Now I didn't know what to believe.
0: I was motivated to pick this because I think this is the position where learning happens. If you don't know what to believe, that's when you are motivated to seek the truth. Obviously, this doesn't mean you'll actually find it. Some people go from this position to going in the wrong direction when that state of cognitive dissonance leads them to double down on a previously held false belief. But you can only get to a state of true understanding by confronting that.
1: I like that. So say the seven words again.
0: Now I didn't know what to believe.
1: Our world is full of conflicting information. You're being told something from somebody and you have to know what their motivation is for telling you that thing. There are times where things sound like facts and a lot of us just kind of smile, nod and go along with it to the point where certain phrases, certain quotes, everything just becomes, of course that's what that person said. So in our world, it's really hard to get a story and know 100% that it's true. Even when you think about things like going to a website like snopes.com or trying to do a lot of research to find out the origin of a story, story becomes rumor, rumor becomes fact, or at least it can morph into something that sounds like fact. So he didn't know what not to believe.
0: And I think if that's really the state you're in, admit it, own that uncertainty and learn to be comfortable in that. And I think there's something powerful about that.
1: For a lot of people though, it's really tough to admit that you don't know something or to admit that you are questioning something. Asking for help is really difficult for a lot of us. Even speaking up and saying that you're uncomfortable with something, it takes a lot of courage ...to admit that you don't know something. It does. I think that we should all be courageous and inquisitive.
0: And this is the starting place.
1: So a lot of our seven words that are going to be from our own lives are going to be very personal. And in this case, it's a personal thing for me. On my last listen through of The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, I started thinking about how... I like to listen to some podcasts that analyze books that I love. I was driving from Seattle to Portland and listening to this and wondering about other people's opinion about the story, about how other people would want to dive into this. And I know that there are a lot of theories. I know that there's a lot of speculation. There's Wikias. There's all of these other people that are very fascinated by Patrick Rothfuss's stories. But I really couldn't find a podcast that scratched all the itches that I had about the story itself. It's something that kind of intrigued me and I've been wanting to learn more about audio production and how to do something like a podcast. And so I called you from a rest stop and said that I wanted to do this crazy thing of make a podcast and put it out in the world and what are you you're trying to find out what i'm gonna say (laughs) i can see your hands moving so i called you with this crazy idea about how about we get audio equipment and how about we start making a podcast about this book that we love and so i just wanted to say thank you for wanting to do this
0: thank you for wanting to do this yeah that is seven words (laughs) oh now more audience vomit
1: we apologize to your upholstery (laughs) so on that note thank you for potting with me
0: thank you for potting with me
1: and thank you audience for listening to tales from the waystone
0: join us next week on tales from the waystone where we will be looking at chapters 9 through 11 of name of the wind through the lens of philosophy we would like to extend a huge thank you to shawnee jang for our theme music
1: and many thanks to patrick rothfuss for creating a world that we have enjoyed exploring Audio production and editing, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough.
0: Project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you'd like to help support us, become a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com waystonepod, where you can get access to custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses.
1: To one more day above the roses. Once again, we would like to... Ex- Once again, we would like to extend a blanket spoil... Spoiler?
0: Spoiler. <laughs> I'll be sure Spoiler. not to spoil it. Spoiler.